Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Judith Peppard. Today on Earth Matters, we delve into the fascinating world of Australia's native bees through the eyes of four people involved in education about them, research and action to increase their chances of survival in the face of ongoing challenges to native bee habitat. Most of the people I spoke with learned about Australia's native bees as adults, but Paul Craft Barragan was introduced to them when he was very young. I'm a Turrbal Yagara, Birrimburra, you can be a Bunjalung man, and I live in southeast Queensland. My totem is actually Nyogai, which is the native bee. So I learned about them very young, learned where to look for them. My grandfather to go in the bush a lot, walking and looking, and he'd tell me stories. There's a lot of different types. So there's solitary native bees, and there's also congregating. So the congregating native bees have a queen. We call a queen Nyogaigun. They introduced European bees. They sting, as you know, and they outdo the native bees for their habitat, like hollow trees and things like that. There's four, I think, four species that I keep. They're, they're all stingless. There's other ones, other native bees that do sting, but they're nothing like the European bees. To my knowledge, they're nowhere near as aggressive or have as, as harsh a sting. And some native bees, like the ones that Paul keeps, produce honey. Yeah, beautiful honey. It's tangy, fruity taste. It's not really oversweet like a European bee honey. They don't produce much of it. I just emptied one hive. It's been for two years. I got 1.8 litres, which is really high. We don't normally get that much. I didn't take it all. I just took it from the super. So I put a super on so they got two areas. But I leave most of it for them through winter, you know, so they can feed themselves. It has some medicinal properties, the honey produced by native bees. So they say it keeps you healthy. There's also a, a yellowy pollen-y stuff they call propolis and it's, that's really good i found for your throat if you've got colds i think there's over 2,000 species of native bees maybe even more than 2,500 they haven't been studied in depth enough to know the full benefits paul craft barragun and there is so much we don't know and researchers like native bee ecologist kit prendergast are looking to find out more Kit has conducted research in Western Australia, and I began by asking her how she defines native bees for purposes of her research. We're talking about the bees that evolved in Australia. They're part of the natural environment that contrasts with the introduced European honeybee, which occurs both in managed colonies, and if we see them out in the native environment, then they would be feral. I prefer to use the wild term to refer to our Indigenous bees. And then if we see honeybees in the wild environment, they are feral as opposed to managed bees. I first heard about wild bees in Australia in university. We were learning about alternative mating tactics and we were learning about Amagilla dorsoni, but the scientific name, Amagilla dorsoni. And I was like, wow, I didn't realise that bees had these behaviours. But it was only after 
I finished my honours that I was thinking of PhD ideas and I went to a talk by the WA Naturalist Club and there was a gentleman who was showing photographs of native bees. His photographs were amazing and I was like, wow, I didn't realise there were native bees like right around where I lived. And I got really interested and my dad made a bee hotel for me and I I just became really fascinated in them, developed a research project idea. I applied for a scholarship and I got it. Kit's PhD research investigated the impact of honeybees on native bees and pollination networks and the impact of urbanization on native bees. I asked Kit what she found out. I found that competition is complex. It doesn't occur everywhere all the time. If it did, we wouldn't have native bees left. But there are cases when competition does happen and honeybees can compete with our native bees. I found it's especially common in more urbanised habitats, so residential gardens, because the honeybees can benefit from the diversity of plants, including the exotic plants, whereas our native bees are more specialised, so there's less of their food resource there. I also found that honeybees can alter pollination networks and the way that they alter them is not in a good way. The more honeybees there are, the more indices of competition overlap, also making the networks more generalised, less connected and less stable, so they're, they're less healthy. So that's what I found during my PhD research. I guess the, the broader theme of native bees in urban areas, we really need to conserve bushland remnants. So in Australia, we have in cities a lot of bushland remaining between residential development. I was comparing people's gardens with the bushland remnants, and the bushland remnants have so many more native bees, so many more species, which really emphasises that we can't afford to clear land, even if there's the suggestion that we will plant gardens if we clear the bushland that just won't replace these bushland remnants, and each remnant will have different native bee assemblages. So losing one, it's not comparable with the other ones. I recently published a new species of native bee, Leoproctocepha, and that's very specialised. It only occurs in a handful of habitats. It only forages on two plant species in the same genus. Really should be given some legislative protection and just one of, of hundreds of species that are not described yet. Native bee ecologist Kit Prendergast. James Dory is an ecologist, evolutionary biologist, and taxonomist at Flinders University in South Australia. I asked James how he first found out about Australia's native bees. It's kind of through photography that I became interested in insects and the native bees. I ended up signing up for an insect course at UQ, and I found 33 species of native bee on the single tree at the front of my house in suburban Brisbane. So I was kind of hooked from that point. Roughly how many species of native bees have been identified by Western science in Australia? So there's about 1,650 or so described, but the estimates kind of run between two and 3,000, depending on who you ask and where you look. How big are they? Like what kind of sizes are we looking at? Really vary. So under two millimetres long. And then get up to maybe two and a half centimetres or so. The introduced honeybee is somewhere around a centimetre in between. Well, I'm curious about where you've conducted your research on native bees. 
after I finished my undergrad, I started a three and a half month trip driving around Australia. I started in Brisbane and I went north, did a full lap, including Tasmania and came back in three and a half months. Since then, I've done a bit more sampling, especially up the East Coast and in far north Queensland. In your travels around Australia, you would have encountered buzz pollinator bees. Yes, I have. Aren't they related to a particular plant that will only open and give pollen if the buzz is around a middle C? Is that true or is it an urban myth? It's not an urban myth. I don't know the exact note and I don't know if all plants have the same note. I'd imagine that different plants have to be vibrated different frequencies. I'm just guessing that. They'll grab onto these plants They're called poricidal anthers, so they're basically the anther is a male part of the plant and they have a pore at the end and all the pollen is kept inside. And the blue banded bees will grab on and they actually headbang at a certain frequency that bounces the pollen out of that little pore and onto the bee. Quite a few native bees that actually go around doing this. So a lot of ground nesting little bees. And what you're hearing is a native bee buzz pollinating a solanum flower. And that was recorded in the Caperty Valley by Vicky Poas. And big thanks to Vicky for permission to use the recording. But back to James Dory, who has investigated with a team of scientists the impact of the 2019-2020 Australian Black Summer wildfires on biodiversity and, in particular, native bees. We tried to quantify how much our native bees might have been impacted by the bushfires. Kind of a meta-analysis, we try and gather as much data as you can. So we gather lots of occurrence data, behavioral and trait data, as well as like bushfire layers, try to overlay those data sets with each other to say, okay, for species X, the fires burnt, say, 50% of their potential habitat. We also looked at fire intensity and the traits to say, okay, well, maybe this species is more resilient to burns and maybe this species is less resilient to burns. In the end, we decided that 11 species should be listed under international threatened species guidelines. So it was endangered and known as vulnerable. And these were basically those species in the southern part of Australia where those fires were really intense and where there was a a really big overlap with their known range and with the fires. So when you say in southern Australia, what states were you looking at? So we did this across the entire continent, but we decided that we'd only recommend species in, it was called the extreme fire zone. I think it starts maybe from around Brisbane, make its way down the coast and through central Australia to Western Australia, just basically where the fires aren't normal. For example, if you go to the north of Australia in the savannah, fires are really, really frequent there. Like every year, a lot of it burns. And so we would maybe expect that the bees there are more resilient to fires than those in the south, which may not be true, but we're trying to be a bit more conservative. So you're saying it was 11 species that were declared endangered or vulnerable? Yeah, that's right. And we could only do this for 500 species, so about a third of the known species. And these are the ones which had more occurrence records and therefore 
bigger distributions already. They're not necessarily the ones that are more likely to be at risk. You found that bushfires are threats for native bees, and I'm sure other insects, creatures that we don't necessarily associate or put into place recovery methods because we're probably focused on larger creatures. That's definitely the case. Um, I think that there's more and more interest in looking at insects and other invertebrates and their conservation status, but the status quo has been more focused on invertebrates, so big fluffy things or feathered things. Beyond bushfires, what other threats do you see for native bees in Australia? Habitat destruction. So a lot of our native bees have only evolved here and they actually pollinate, you know, native plants. If we clear lots of forest, well, those plants are going to be removed and probably those bees as well. And I would guess that is the biggest threat, especially in agriculturally intense landscapes. It seems like urban landscapes are a little bit better, particularly because people like to plant flowers in the front yard. And especially if you'll plant native plants, then you'll be attracting a lot of bees climate change, especially where, say, there's a species that needs a certain habitat type. If climates change and it needs to track with that climate, if that habitat now is fragmented because otherwise habitats are destroyed, they can't move to the nearest suitable habitat. So there are quite a few threats. James Dory, an ecologist, evolutionary biologist and taxonomist based at Flinders University in South Australia, and like James, Paul Craft Barragun is also concerned about land clearing. Here where I live in South East Queensland, every year I go up into the mountains in pond country and look back to the ocean and there's no trees there anymore. There's houses more and more closer and closer and closer to the rainforest. And you think, when will it stop? I say to the kids in the classes when we break it down, where does everything come from, you know, and we work it out. It comes from the earth, mother. Jagan, we call Jagan the earth. Everything we have comes from the earth. And I say to them, well, can we live without the environment? At first they say yes, and they say, oh, no, 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 we can't. Then I say, but can the environment live without us? You see? And they have to realise that we're just bacteria on the skin of the earth mother. We can be a good bacteria or we can be a bad one, but she'll just turn around and wipe us like that. We do it to ourselves. Virus or wars, whatever, eh? Paul Craft Barragun. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. We've been looking at Australia's wild bees, or native bees, around 1,600 species, and it's estimated that at least 1,000 species and maybe more yet to be described by Western science. With so many threats to the habitat of native bee populations, people across Australia are taking action by educating the public and working to protect habitat in the bush and in the cities. Emma Cutting lives in Inner Melbourne. She's the force behind the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor, a project that grew out of her interest in street gardening. I remember this moment, actually. I looked up the street and saw all these spaces, barren spaces, but they weren't sealed with asphalt. And I went, what could we do here to help? And I was thinking honeybees to start with. But then as I delved into what honeybees needed, I learnt about our native bees. And then I went, how could I not have ever known about them? I grew up on a farm. I love nature. This is ridiculous. I started taking native bee lessons, talking to a lot more scientists and specialists in various fields, and then started looking at what type of gardens would have the best chance of success 
for biodiversity in our urban areas. Native bee lessons, what are they? I was researching on my computer late at night. I had a baby at the time. Got in touch with a native bee specialist, Dr. Kit Prendergast. What I learnt was not a lot is known about native bees. It really taught me to look a lot more at the science. One of the things that has grown from it is the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor. Melbourne Pollinator Corridor, or the MPC, is an eight-kilometre, ecology-centred but community-driven wildlife corridor. It's been designed for native pollinating insects, like native bees and butterflies, and it connects the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, to Westgate Park. Directly, we've had the help of many specialists and scientists in many fields of expertise. What we're looking at are these barren spaces, barren pieces of public land, nature strips, so much space there. And I feel like the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor is still a work in progress. Our most important thing is to get the gardens in. I've spent two and a half years on the design and setup, making sure that what we've got is the best chance of success with our gardens. We've created 10 covering over 480 square metres so far, and we're aiming for 200 gardens, no more than 50 metres apart, at least 18,000 plants in the ground by the end of 2024. How will this help the bees, the insects, butterflies that you're looking to protect? What will be the advantage for them? Local science has shown that Indigenous plantings are the best way to help our Indigenous biodiversity. We do Indigenous-focused gardens, so they're not purely Indigenous. They're 80%. We've worked really hard on this plant palette. But another way our gardens help is by increasing or strengthening the genetic diversity. And just giving them strength as populations as well. So if you've got a little pocket of native bees that don't have any way of getting out of that pocket because of habitat clearance or a developer or whatever, and suddenly gets cleared, they're gone. And so if you give them connection, if you give them gardens to go to, then they've got more chance of actually being able to live and be happy. So again, what we're doing is just giving them a way of moving around. They're in a local area, as you say, and then there's just a barren space that they're not able to cross. Absolutely. So although we're in a highly urbanised environment and there are some tricky patches, there are patches in there that are fine for native bees. And it's actually finding ways to connect those up as well. To, to bring all the layers of biodiversity. And we're just talking about insects. You've got predators and pollinators and everything in between. One of the main reasons why I designed the MPC for native pollinating insects is because if you've got your pollinating insects in there, it means you've got a whole lot of other insects. And when you've got the insects, you've got the rest of the ecosystem coming on board. I love the idea of bee and bug hotels. They're fantastic. And if you can, for instance, I mean, it's just about the depth of the hole and the width of the hole as well. There needs to be certain dimensions that are looked at in order to have successful breeding for our bees. But also it's worth knowing that what's almost more important than bug hotels is actually ground. Uh, We need undisturbed open ground because 70% of our native bees nest on the ground. And that's actually one of the biggest things, obviously, with 
habitat clearance, with you know the urban sprawl, we're losing that open ground, especially the undisturbed open ground, and we really need to think about that. The sound of the native bees, is it different? from the sound of exotic bees? It depends on, on the species, but definitely one of the most obvious bees in this area, it's the, the blue-banded bee. They sound like a freight train coming through and they fly like it too. So once you hear it, you never forget the sound of it. And I tell you, it's one of the most exciting sounds as well. It took about six years for a blue-banded bee to come into our backyard. That was last summer. I was, I was remarkably excited, yes. <laughs> Emma Cutting, finding ways to connect patches of land to support native bee populations in inner Melbourne. And in the middle of all that, she made time to write the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor Handbook, just in case anyone else out there wants to do the same thing. And there's been a lot of interest from around Australia. Dr. Kit Prendergast, one of the scientists who gave Emma Cutting her native bee lessons, use the circus to get the message out. I have a gymnastics background. I love circus so much and it's a really great way to communicate various issues and really engaging with audiences. With regard to the circus performances, uh, is that where the persona of Bee Babette came in? That came about Fringe Festival, which I've just come back from, Perth Fringe Festival. I was actually doing a, a talk at a Celebrate Like Claremont Day. And the director at the time of Fringe Festival came up and he was like, oh, you know, native bees, they're so fringe. And I was like, yeah, they are. Like, they're not part of the mainstream. Honeybees are mainstream. Native bees are on the fringe. They're diverse. They're, like, interesting, weird and wild. And that is the essence of Fringe. And he was developing having a native bee theme that year. And he was like, I'd like to, like, consult with you so that you can make sure that we do do it right I did that and then he gave me the opportunity to do a photographic exhibition and take the kids because I, I love working with kids and it's so positive to see in tune kids are with the environment they love bees so I took them on a, like a little tour and I had a dress made up for me that was a native bee dress and that's where the persona of the bee that came about and become yeah sort of my, my alter ego. Great. And I think you've written a book as well. I have. Um, I've written a couple. The main one is called Creating a Haven for Native Bees. And this is a book all about how to create nesting habitat for the native bees with bee hotels, the bees that use them. It's also a bit on the other nesting habitats of native bees, so the ground nesting bees and the ones that nest in pithy stems, as well as a list of some great flora that our native bees love, a couple of other things on how we can help the native bees. That's my main book. I also wrote a little book, uh, more of like a, a narration of my adventures to study Amygdala dorsoni, which is the bee that was my gateway into native bees. Kit Prendergast. And like Kit, Paul Craft Barragon loves working with children. What do you enjoy most about the work you're doing in schools? Oh, just sharing my cultural heritage and cultures. Teach, so go and teach them everything from language to songs, stories, dancing, musical instruments. We go for walks in the scrub and I point out plants and tell them stories. Teach them about the seasons, not the four European seasons that you're used to here. They don't, they don't apply. We've got six here and sometimes seven if there's a cyclone, there's an extra seasonal and, and, and indicators. I hop up every morning with a smile on my face 
going out to share my culture is so enjoyable. Hopefully one of these kids that I teach, you know, might become an environmental scientist and study further. Paul Craft Barragun. And what do environmental scientists love most about their work? I asked James Story. That's a really good question. I don't know if there's anything that I enjoy most. I mean, I love the diversity of it. I, I love that you can just ask questions and as long as you can get funding for it, satisfy your curiosity and also the fact that that curiosity is important and interesting for other people and for conservation. Um, so hopefully, like, you know, the research that you do and hopefully enjoy is also relevant for preserving those animals that you're researching. And what about Emma Cutting? I think it's been the fact that I've been able to flip my thinking and focus on what can be done and do as much of that as possible and see that there actually is a lot that can be done and that groundswell creates change. And change is what so many people are after. I asked Kit Prendergast what advice she had for listeners who share her passion for native bees. If you are thinking about getting honeybee hive in your backyard, probably think again. If you have a garden, lots of native flora, the melaleucas, the eucalyptus and the clistamen, they attract heaps of native bees. If you've got councils that want to install street trees, which they should, let's go for the native matasi rather than introduce jacarandas. Keep the trees as well for, for nesting habitat, for the cavity nesting bees. You can also help them with bee hotels, but they need to be designed properly. Bare ground for the ground nesting bees. Tackling climate change by reducing or eliminating your meat intake, which will also reduce land clearing for agriculture. Getting interested in our native bees. And if you do have the ability to invest in something, invest in native bee taxonomy, because that's the backbone of native bee biodiversity. And with so many species that we don't even have a name for, that's, that's quite concerning. Dr. Kit Prendergast, native bee ecologist and science communicator. And we're coming to the end of Earth Matters for today. A big thank you to all our guests, Paul Craft Barragan, Kit Prendergast, James Dory, and Emma Cotting. To find out more about Paul Barragan's work, go to his website, www.barragan.com.au, and Barragan is spelled B-U-R-R-A-G-U-N. You can also check out the article he co-authored in the conversation about the meaning of marks found on traditional boomerangs. Kit Prendergast has published Creating a Haven for Native Bees, and you can find it by simply Googling Kit Prendergast and the name of the book. Emma Cutting has written the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor Handbook, available through the Heart Gardening Project, and James Dory has also published a book based on his photography. It's called Bees of Australia, a photographic exploration, and it's available through CSIRO Publishing. And I'll put all of that on the Earth Matters website. Lots of goodness about native bees to discover. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for their efforts in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted on earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now. 
But tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories. Thank you.